Indeed, oh God, you are a, a, a God worthy of praise. We have had eyes open to see something so beautiful in you that you found a way to save people as wicked and as sinful as I. You have found a way to pay a price for the debt my sin deserved. You have found a way to reconcile sinful man with a thrice holy God. And so now we stand as men and women forgiven, not because they've earned a thing, not because they've merited anything from your hand. It is simply that gracious gift of eternal life that we've received by faith. That which you've provided and paid for yourself through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Consequently, praise. Praise fills our mouths for this God. Praise fills our hearts for, for this God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of Sinai. The God, the God who parted the Red Sea. The God who superintended the virgin birth of Jesus Christ and the God who reigns immortally, even now. Father, give us a grand sense of peace and comfort in knowing that our God, the one that we call our Father in heaven, our God, reigns. In the midst of all that we've had to face this week, In the midst of what we'll have to face tomorrow, remind us that our God reigns. That he has not slipped off his throne, that he has not been caught by surprise, that he is not sitting in heaven with a quizzical look on his face. Our God reigns. And the God who does is a good God, a God who has displayed love in Christ. And we are his people. And for you, O God, we have nothing but our praise. O God, that we live in a world that seems to go mad day by day in its sin. Its love of wickedness. Its its delight in perversion. And I pray, Father, that the church of Jesus Christ will see that the only hope that this culture has is not in further economic gain. It is in the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus. I pray for our government, Lord, who seems to have indeed lost its way. And I pray that you will have mercy on this nation, mercy that we don't deserve, but mercy that is so desperately needed from a country that used to have you high and lifted up, but no longer. Oh, God, use the church, the body of Christ. To remind this country of her first love. Lord, thank you for all the privileges that are before us this, this coming summer. I pray that you will guard all that's happening tomorrow when the junior hires leave. Lord, I pray that you will guard them and keep them safe as they travel and while they're over there and bring them back to us. And then the next week, the high school students that head to, to the beach, I pray that you'll guard them. And the group that goes to Guatemala and the second group that goes to Costa Rica and and the, and the skiing and the swimming and all that's going to happen, Lord, we, we do not take for granted the safety that is so, that we've so enjoyed in the past. Grant us that again, would you? And then take these monies, every dime of them, and use them 
to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ in that alone. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. Now, let's uh, open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 30. And let me say, while you're turning, I'm not sure that the Holy Spirit intended for this text to be used the way I'm going to use it this morning. Um, But um, stay with me. Genesis chapter 30 at verse 1. We're going to read all the way through verse 24. 1 through 24. Here we go. When Rachel saw that she bore children, uh, she she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? Then she said, Here is my servant Bilhah. Go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her, and Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she called his name Dan. Rachel's servant, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called his name Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come, so she called his name Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy, so she called his name Asher. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take my, away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. <laughs> when Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. And God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband, so she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne him six sons. So she called his name Zebulun. Afterwards, she bore a daughter and called her name Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. Uh, Brothers, I I have to tell you that um, we need to face a, a, a very hard truth, and that is that Father's Day comes in a very distant second to Mother's Day. In terms of holidays, we really, we really came in second. I mean, uh, there's a whole lot of hoopla that goes on on Mother's Day, but not much on Father's Day. And by the way, it's two weeks away. Um, I, 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 in my effort to try and balance that just a bit, you may recall that I preached two sermons on Mother's Day. So I just thought it was only right to preach two sermons on Father's Day. So we're going to preach one this morning. And then come back in a couple of weeks on and, and preach another one uh, concerning fathers and husbands, etc. Now, that's the way I'm going to use this text. Because what you get here in chapter 30 is, uh, I'm, again, I'm not sure the Holy Spirit intended this, but it is a portrait 
of a husband who doesn't seem to know up from down. Uh, Jacob is, is having a good time, but uh, he doesn't seem to know very much about being a husband. And so I want to review with you Jacob as a husband. First of all, he has not one, but two unhappy women on his hands. Now that's got to say something. It's one thing to have one unhappy wife. He's got two unhappy wives. There is a statement in verse 13 where Leah says she's happy. <laughs> yeah, right. She's happy, all right, but she's not happy about her marriage. She's happy that she's winning over her sister. That is, the score at this point, uh, at verse 13, is Leah 6, Rachel 2. And Leah's really happy about that, but she's not happy in her marriage. Um, and, and you notice in verse 8, what Rachel wanted, all she wants to do is win over her sister. What a home. Two unhappy wives who are sisters fighting with each other over who's going to have prominence in the home. And then, uh, in verse 2, we're told that in the face of all this, uh, Jacob is angry. Now, you know, uh, over in 1 Peter 3, it says to husbands, it says, husbands... You need to live with your wives with understanding. <laughs> He's not got an ounce of that. There's no understanding here. He's just angry. Um, you know, she comes to him and says, you got to give me children. And, and he says, he just pops off. Uh, verse 3, he's told what to do. He's not leading. The women are leading his home. He does what he's told. Uh, but there's not one smidgen of an effort at any solution to this division that's going on in his own. He's not trying to solve this. Oh, uh, he certainly seems to be enjoying himself. But he doesn't have any, any uh, solution to this battle between his two wives. You know what Jacob reminds me of here in all this woman, 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 you know, just serial women into his tent. Uh, there's, by the way, I hope this story didn't offend anybody. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it might, but I have to tell you, Chuck Swindoll told this story, so it's somewhat sanitized if Chuck told it. But it's a story about the farmer who um, who wanted to uh, to breed his sows. Now, a sow is a female pig, and so his next door neighbor, another farmer, uh, had a few boars. Now, that's a male pig, and so the two of them made arrangements to get the sows and the boars together. Well, one afternoon, the farmer loaded his sows into his pickup truck and, and, and hauled them over to the, the, the neighbor's farm. And uh, when, while, the, um, while the pigs were getting very well acquainted, uh, he asked his farmer friend, how would he know if these pigs were pregnant? And, and the other farmer said, well, that, that's easy. He says, uh, they wallow in the grass when it takes, and they wallow in the mud if it doesn't take. So... Um, Early the next morning, the, uh, the farmer gets out of bed and looks out the bedroom window, and he notices that his three uh, female pigs are wallowing in the mud. And so that was very disappointing. So he loaded them back up into the truck and took them back over uh, for a second round with the boars. Uh, next morning, he wakes up. Sure enough, the pigs are still wallowing in the mud. And, uh, and um, he was a little bit disappointed, but he was determined. And so he loads them back up into the pickup truck. And um, because he's thinking, the, you know, the third time's going to be the charm. Well, the following morning, he had to be away for some business. And so he was real anxious to find out what the pigs were doing. So he, he calls home to his wife and he says, honey, uh, are the pigs, are they wallowing in the mud or in the grass? And she says, um, well, actually, honey, neither. 
But uh, two of them are in the back of the pickup truck and the others in the front seat honking the horn. <laughs> well, that's who that that one in the front seat honking the horn. That's what Jacob reminds me of. He just he's having a good time. But in terms of solution to his marital problems, he ain't got anything. Then in verse 16, you come down to this mandrake problem and which is kind of an aphrodisiac. And and um, uh, he again, they tell him what to do. Still no effort on his part to to promote peace between the two wives. Uh, he, he is apparently very willing to live in this dysfunction. Doesn't seem to know what to do. You know, this mandrake thing, he's selling things that ought not be sold, folks. So what you got here is a story of two unhappy wives married to a man who, though... Angry at one of them, or maybe both of them, for their, for their bickering, offers absolutely no solutions whatsoever to his family problems. What would you call him? How would you describe him? What adjectives would you use? Would you call him passive? Or perhaps unprincipled? Or, or maybe weak? Or uh, uh, uninvolved? Would you call him a buffoon? Would you call him uh, uh, a poor leader? But sexually motivated? Ladies and gentlemen, that is a recipe for marital disaster. He's always ready to do his duty when called upon, but he is absolutely clueless about what to do to bring peace into his home. Brothers, that ain't going to cut it. Okay, then what will? Well, let me tell you one more story. Um, This is a story about... King Arthur. You've heard of King Arthur in the round table. Well, when King Arthur was still a very young king, he was captured by a, a, a neighboring rival king. And um, this rival king was going to kill him, but uh, he was moved by Arthur's youth and ideals, and so he decided to offer him a deal. And the deal was this. I'm, I'll let you live if you can answer a very... Uh, important question. And I'm going to give you a year to answer that question. But I want you to answer that question. And if in a year you can't answer this question, you're going to die. So Arthur um, uh, thought, okay, that's a pretty good deal. And then he said, here's the question. What do women really want? And so Arthur thought, oh my goodness, that's a pretty tough question. And, and I don't know where I'm going to get an answer to that. But You know, it's certainly better than dying, so he accepted the proposal. The question he was supposed to answer, he had a year to find the answer, but if he didn't find it, he's going to die. So he goes back to his kingdom, and he he begins to poll anybody that he can talk to. He talks to the princes, and he talks to the princesses. He talks to the the priests and the prostitutes. He talks to the wise men. He even talks to the court jester. He talks to the kids on the street. He spoke with anybody and everybody, but nobody could give him a satisfactory answer to that question. But they, several of them told him that if you want an answer to your question, you're really going to have to consult with the witch. Because she'll have an answer for you. But you beware, because the witch uh, demands a very high price for all of her help. And so um, uh, the last day of the year rolls around, and King Arthur still doesn't have an answer to the question. And so he says, well, you know, I ain't got the option. I better go see the witch. So he goes to the witch and he tells her the question. What do women really want? She says, okay, I'll give you the answer to that. 
but uh, you got to agree to pay my price first. And she said, okay. He said, all right, what's the price? And, he, and she said, the price is I want to marry Gawain. Now, Gawain, as you know, was the, uh, the most uh, noble of all the knights of the round table and, and uh, was, a, was the best friend of King Arthur. And, and Arthur was horrified. I mean, this witch was hunchbacked and hideous. And she had only a one tooth. And, and, and she smelled like sewage and, and made obscene noises. So he wasn't about to have anything to do with that. But Gawain heard about it. And Gawain, because of his love for King Arthur, he said, listen... It is bad, but it certainly couldn't be as bad as your death. So they agreed to take her proposal, and the wedding day is announced. And so the witch says, all right, here's the answer to your question. What does a woman really want? Here's what she wants. She wants to be in charge of her own life. And everyone knew instantly that they had heard a profound answer. King Arthur returned to the other king and told him what he had found out. And he said, that's good. And he let him off. So the wedding date uh, arrived and, and Arthur was torn between his own relief and his own anguish. But Gawain was, was proper as always. Very kind, uh, very uh, gentle and courteous. And the old witch at the wedding put on her worst possible behavior. Made, just grossed everybody out at the wedding. And then after the reception, the hour approached and Gawain stealing himself for a horrific experience enters the bedroom. And there awaiting him was this, the most beautiful woman that he had ever seen. And, and he's just so shocked and astonished and he asked her, what's happened? And, and she replies that since he had been so kind to her, when she appeared as a witch... She would, from that day on, be her horrible, ugly, witchly self only half of the time. Uh, but he had to choose which half. She would be the witch either at night or the witch during the day. So he had to choose whether he would have a beautiful princess woman to show off to his friends and enjoy during the day or to have that beautiful woman uh, with whom he could, have, could share many intimate moments at night. So Gawain goes back to her and says, um, oh, by the way, what would you say? How would you answer? What would you tell her? So Gawain goes back to the witch and he says that he would allow her to choose for herself. And upon hearing that, the witch then announced that she would be beautiful all the time. Because he had respected her enough to let her be in charge of her own life. Now, what's the moral of that story? The moral of the story is this. If your woman does not get her own way, things are going to get ugly. So is that it? You finally got it? <laughs> Goodness gracious, you're slow. Um, is that it, guys? Is that, what, um, is that what's going to make... Uh, is that what women want? Is the, is the key to marital, marital happiness just, just give her what she wants? You know, I don't think either of us believe that. I don't think husbands or wives believe that. 
I don't think either one of us believe that's going to work. Okay, then what will work? If that ain't going to work, then what will work? Well, gang, I'm going to try to answer that pretty briefly this morning. I'm going to start this morning and try to answer it a couple of weeks from now. But, I'm going to, but I want you to know I'm, I'm very trepidatious over this. You know, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And, and how can a man know anything about what a woman wants? Well, bear with me. And we'll see if we can come up with something decent. Um, you know, I think you've heard me say before that I don't enjoy doing weddings where, where the couple comes to me and say they want to write their own wedding vows. Um, I'll do it, but I don't like to. I mean, they, when they write them, they end up rather vague and mawkish, and, and I really don't want to do it. Um, but I will if, you know, if, if they're okay. But um, anyway, I read a story just recently about a pastor who feels the same way I do. He doesn't want to do weddings like that either. But the little couple insisted that they wanted to write their own vows, and so he met with them, and they brought their vows with them to, um, to, uh, to, for him to read. And so um, in the vows, or at least one of the vows that they were going to exchange at the wedding was this. I promise to be true to myself. And, uh, and the pastor looked at this little cute couple and he said, you know, um, I, I really don't believe you want to put that in your vows. And the little groom kind of stiffened up, you know, in his chair and he said, well, I'm pretty sure we do. Well, I need to tell you that at that point, I would have probably been out of it. <laughs> and I said, fine, you just go on, but I'm not going to do this. But this guy was a whole lot sweeter than I am and, and uh, uh, much more pastoral. And so he went on. He said, well, uh, let, let, me, let, me, let me tell you this. He says, uh, you may be different from me, but he said, but there's a part of me that, I, that I'm glad to say is kind and, and generous and joy-filled and, and trusting and but, you know, there's another part of me, perhaps the larger part, that is mean and selfish, can be cruel. Um, I'm, uh, I'm apathetic on occasion, uh, lustful, greedy. Now, tell me, which part of myself am I supposed to be true to? You know, guys... Um, when I read that, it, 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 it struck me that if you, if you remember the vows that you took in marriage, those traditional vows that mine are somewhat traditional about, you know, until death do us part and, you know, sickness and health and all that business. If you, if you look at those things, the essence of those vows is a promise that you won't be true to yourself. That, that I'm going to be true to somebody else, that, I, that I'll be true to my God. But, but in order to do that, to be true to God, I mean, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, have to deny myself. I'm going to have to um, deny my impulse to, to run and to retaliate and to, and to pout and to, and to give up. In essence, in those traditional vows, I'm promising to wage war on myself. To deny myself. To die to myself. Gang, one of the ways that you can understand or describe the trouble that we're so often in maritally today is that too many of us for way too long have lived by the promise to be true to ourselves. Gang, that's a myth. 
It's a myth of self-reliance. Being self-reliant, true to ourselves. That's at the very root of our fallenness. We fell because we trusted ourselves. And we're, if I can just part from marriage just for a second, you and I will never be saved as human beings. We'll never go to heaven until we learn to come to the end of ourselves and fall upon the mercy of God and trust Him and Him alone. But guys, in our marriages, we don't want to be true to ourselves. We want to be true to the God who made us. You know, when, when couples are in my office in premarital counseling, I always say this to them. I say, you show me a couple. You know, some of them come in there thinking, you know, they've had a divorce here, a divorce in their family, a divorce over here. And they're, they're somewhat concerned about it. Not, not all of them, but a few of them come in there. And, and I always say this to them. I say, let me tell you something. You show me a couple that is willing to die to self, and I'll show you a couple who can make it. But, but I, I need to add this here, brothers. That that dying to self business seems to be harder for us than it does for women. I'm not saying that women are not guilty here. They are guilty here. But I'm simply saying that this call to self-denial comes a little, it seems to me, comes a little bit easier to a woman than it does to us. And, and while I'm at it, ladies, I might as well go ahead and just dive all the way in. Um, I think you women think that you know what men want, and I'm not sure you do. You know, another thing that I do in premarital counseling is that I ask the little prospective bride and groom. I, I turn to the little bride and I, and I, a prospective bride and I say, could you describe for me the number one emotional need of a man? Did you hear me? Describe for me the number one emotional need of a man. And half the time, this little cute little thing, little long young thing will say, mm, sex. That ain't right. That's the wrong answer. That, that's, not, that's not it. But this morning we're here trying to find out what a woman wants, not a man. So, guys, for now, let's just try to answer, go back and answer that question. What does a woman really want? Here's, here's number one, and we'll add to this list in a couple of weeks. Brothers, listen to me. Here's what a woman really wants from you. She wants from us acts, A-C-T-S, acts of self-renunciation. I read an article by a Karen Howe. I think it appeared in World Magazine. The title of the article was Husbands, the title of the article was Husbands Forget the Heroics. And she says in the article, most women do not want their men to die for them. They want their men to live for them. I'm going to tell you a story that I have um, been very reluctant to tell you. Because in one sense, it's kind of embarrassing. But we're going to tell it anyway. I, I think most of you know, uh, many of you have been in my home before. And, and if you haven't been in my home, I'd love to have you in my home. Uh, we... we we do a lot of entertaining in our home, but um, if you ever come to my home, if you've been to my home, you know that Susie and I used to have a dog. The name of that dog was Polly, and Polly was nuts. That was a certified nut case of a dog. Um, she was she was a, just 
and the older she got, the nuttier she got. I mean, it was, she was just a bad dog. And, and so we got these grandsons, you know, that have come into our life now and, and the grandsons were coming over and every time they would come over, this dog would just go out of her mind and run over them and knock them down and they're crying and they're afraid of her. And, you know, it's just a mess with this crazy dog. And so Susie had prayed, um, Lord, if this dog is going to bite somebody, let her bite me. That is Susie. So sure enough, one night, this dog bites my wife on the finger, draws blood. And that was the last day she ever had a chance to bite anybody. She has now gone on to her great reward in Canineville. So <laughs> I didn't like that dog. I, I didn't, you know, I, the dog drove me crazy. Actually, it was my wife's idea to, uh, <clears throat> it's called T61. Uh, but anyway, we were dogless for about seven months. And I, I love being dogless. I don't want it. I don't want a dog. I don't want a dog. I didn't want a dog. I don't, you know, you have to take care of them when you got it down. You got to make sure they don't go to the bed or the carpet. You know, I don't want a dog. I don't want a dog. Well, one day I'm sitting in my office, minding my own business, not harming a soul. And Hank Wright calls me. Now, if you know Hank, Hank's a veterinarian. We have, we have a couple of uh, fine veterinarians. Clark Kelsey is another fine. But uh, it was um, Hank Wright calls me and he says, Jimmy, I know your situation with the dogs, but um, I got a dog out here that I think you'd like to see. And so I get in my car, drive out to his office, and uh, he shows me this dog. And I mean, very honestly, folks, it was a precious animal. Precious. little uh, golden retriever mix that had been rescued and yada, yada, yada. And so, I mean, I'm walking out of there now just in turmoil. You know, and Susie didn't know a thing. Just between me and Hank. And so I spend the rest of that Friday afternoon. I don't want the dog. you got to take care of the dog. And I don't want my wife wants the dog. So, um, you know, sometime Friday night, I decide, okay, we need to go ahead and get the dog for Susie. So the next morning, on a Saturday morning, um, uh, Susie always sleeps later than I do. And, and I uh, went into the bedroom and, and, uh, and about a quarter to ten. Um, no, no, it really wasn't. <laughs> it really wasn't a quarter to ten. It was, uh, it was 20 minutes to ten. But uh, um, <laughs> I go into in the bedroom and I say, babe, get up, get dressed. Uh, I got a surprise for you. And she looks at me like, who do you think you are? <laughs> and um, so I said, come on, come on, get out of bed. I, I got a surprise for you. So she gets out of bed, and, and as she's getting out of bed, and she knows nothing now. She knows nothing. She gets out of bed, and she says, well, this better be about a dog. I said, come on, come on, get dressed, get dressed. So she gets dressed, and, um, uh, you know, we get in the car. We head out to Hank's office, and uh, we pull into the parking lot, and... Um, she gets out of the car on her side, and, I'm a, and she, she looks across the car, and she says, If this is not about a dog, this is the cruelest thing you've ever done to me. <laughs> so we go into the veterinarian's office, and they put us in those little study rooms, or whatever they call them. And, I mean, she is beside herself at this moment. Beside herself. And uh, they open the little door and bring in this little dog. And my wife just absolutely melts in this, I mean, it was immediate bonding. Now, let, let me race fast forward real quick, and then we're going to come back to this moment. But let me fast forward. Uh, once we got the dog, the dog lived four days. That's the truth. Had distemper, and we had to put her down. Anyway, so we had this dog. for four, But anyway, we're back in the room, and, and uh, we're looking at this dog. And it's a bit, we got another dog, by the way. Um, <laughs> but anyway, my wife is looking at this Annie 1. 
the dog's name's Annie, but this is Annie one, the one that lived with us four days and then had to be put down. But um, um, she's looking at this diamond and just so excited, but we can't pick up the dog until Monday and and uh, because, you know, Hank's got to do something with her or whatever they're doing. And so this is on a Saturday, and so we got a couple days to wait. And so we're walking out the uh, the veterinarian's office through the little lobby, you know, the little, and, and you know, the waiting room thing. And, and my wife looks at or turns to the girls who work there, and she says to these girls that work there, she says this. She says, my husband really does love me. And I want you to know that hurt my feelings. I said to her, I said, babe, I've been married to you for 36 years. I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many things that, I mean, you know, things that I've done and, and uh, you know, chocolates and... Uh, you know, Christmas gifts. And I can't, I mean, the, the, the times that I have told you that I love you, you cannot, there are innumerable. And yet, brothers, listen to me. Every act of self-renunciation is heard at a deep, soulish level. Like nothing else is heard. Save your money on the chocolates. What your woman wants is not for you to die for, but for you to live for by a series of acts of self renunciation. That's what a woman wants. Our Father, I do pray that you will uh, use the uh, horrible example of Jacob as a reminder that we husbands can get pretty mired in some pretty foolish behavior. And the end result is a fractured, dysfunctional, ugly, bitter home. And now we know, O oh God, what the solution is. And I pray that you will grant us grace, we self-absorbed men, that you will grant us grace to communicate to our wives in a way that perhaps we haven't yet that indeed they are loved. Father, if you've brought people here today who have not yet met Jesus Christ, I pray that, that something that's been sung or said or prayed might uh, stir them, that they might not have a moment's peace until they discover the great beauty of the crucified Christ. Now, Father... Might our marriages be things at which the world might look at and make and draw conclusions about the beauty of the Savior as a result of looking at our homes. Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray.